Welcome to the Myelin and Melanin podcast with Dawn and Dana. We are just two women sharing our musings on life, MS, and everything in between. Episode 22. 22. We have made it to almost a year. This yes. It's been a great journey. Definitely. So, yeah. How have you been? Um, It's been a wild couple of weeks. Um. Yeah. Wild. So, yes, I think we both have experienced, um, I don't know how to put it besides saying wild, because it has been, I, I would say, kind of a roller coaster for me. Um, would you say it's been a roller coaster for you or just kind of, you know, uh, difficult, overall difficult? A roller coaster. And I will, yeah, get into that shortly. But yeah, definitely a roller coaster. I think with multiple sclerosis, quite often people experience the emotional aspect of what it can do to you. So while you're dealing with physical challenges, I'm dealing with emotional challenges. For example, you know, transitioning from one job to another or even trying to find suitable, a suitable job that will not tire you out or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, something that is kind of compatible with your MS, if you will. Um, and then just, you know, struggling with, well, not struggling, but just, you know, facing what to do with, with money, you know, how do you pay for this and how do you pay for that? How do you make ends meet so that your household can still stay afloat and you can be sane? So, yeah. Um, but I know I, I was kind of worried about, well, not kind of, but very worried about you when you told me what you were going through. And I thought initially that you were, you know, just going to be in and out, but yeah. I didn't know what was happening. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So, um, I am recording this podcast from a rehab, um, center and obviously not like substance abuse rehab or anything, but an orthopedic rehab center. Um, just a little bit of what's been going on with me. So I was admitted to the hospital, um, on October 30th, which is almost three weeks now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was feeling overall like a couple days before that, I've been feeling kind of weak, nothing too, too alarming, but just overall, just kind of weaker than I normally am. And um, later on in um, the day, this was a Tuesday, I was getting ready to stand up and my legs were like completely numb. I could feel my legs, but I couldn't move them. They were just completely immobile. Mm-hmm. And um as I'm sure anybody who has MS or not would be freaked out if that happened um, to you, because that's not my normal. Um, So called the ambulance and um, headed to the ER and the hospital where my neurologist is based out of, it's a bit, it's not super far away from my house, but it's, there are hospitals closer, but I always feel more comfortable going to, especially if I'm dealing with something MS related, going to the hospital where my neurologist is based out of. Mm -hmm. So the usual happens, you know, I get, you know, admitted to the ER and of course, you know, that takes forever. Um, but I, they started an IV course of solumedrol, which is, as those of you with MS know, the standard protocol for any MS exacerbation. And um, shortly after that, I was in form- formally admitted to the hospital. So I'm thinking, you know, it's just going to be maybe a three-day stay, three or five-day, depending on what was, uh, you know, what was going to happen. Just And I say three or five days because as those of you with MS know, typically those are the courses of IV um, solumedrol right. or steroids. So um, after the second day, um, my doctor orders an MRI and I have the MRI and it showed or revealed that 
I had two new lesions. Well, I don't know if it was just two, but at least two new lesions on my brain and spinal cord. Okay. okay. So can I ask a quick question? After Limtrata, were you getting regular, you know, every six month MRIs or just one every year? Um, every six months, sometimes it'd be later, just depending on me. But up until the MRI that I got, you know, when I was first admitted to the hospital this last go round, everything was clear. There was no, you know, disease activity or anything like that until now. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, I was disgusted, mm-hmm. say the least, after going through all. And listeners, we have an entire episode devoted to our Lemtrata journeys. Yeah. Um, and it, it was a process. It's a journey. So as you can imagine, I was just completely disgusted that after all I went through with Lemtrata, I would have new lesions. Like that's not supposed to happen. Right. Because you were the first, you know, person in Wisconsin to receive Lemtrata. So yeah. Completely disgusted. Um, as those of you who have MS, um, are, or not everyone with MS is going to be aware of the Lemtrata protocol, but after the final infusion of Lemtrata, and again, I encourage those of you who, um, are unsure about what Lemtrata is, listen to, I think it's episode eight of our podcast where we, Dawn and I share our Lemtrata journeys. But nonetheless, um, the protocol is that after your final infusion, you have to be monitored for once a month with once a month labs for four years. That being said, I, my final Lemtrata infusion was in 2016. So in February of 2016, Which so I guess my year one, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah, going on, you know, three years, but even despite the fact that Lemtrata clearly failed me, um, I'm still going to have to continue with the labs, and that's just kind of like a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, so my neurologist, you know, right away, um gave me the option of starting Ocrevus, um, which as those of you um, familiar with MS may know that that is the latest um, drug that has been approved by the FDA for MS. Um, So that was one of my options. The other option would be to get another uh, course of Lemtrata, which... Three rounds. Right. Excuse my language, but fuck Lemtrata. That's really how I feel right now. Um, Totally feel like it failed me completely. And and we, you know, it's interesting for listeners and people who have MS and they're, you know, trying to decide which, you know, DMD to choose. For me, I've had complete opposite, a complete opposite experience than you because I've been doing fairly, you know, pretty, pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have any new lesions, but that isn't to say that it can't happen, you know? Um, right. And and honestly, obviously no drug is fail safe. I mean, I went into my Lemtrata journey knowing that, you know, not everything is a hundred percent. So, I mean, I knew that I was willing to take the risks involved. It just really sucks when, you are a part of that whatever percent that obviously the drug didn't work. Yes. It's really, yeah, not a good thing. So um, nonetheless, I start Ocrevus on the 28th of November. But, you know, while I was in the hospital, um, it was determined that I may um, – it, some re, some physical rehabilitation may be useful for me to really get my strength back and really get me to my baseline, at right. least mm-hmm. not any better. So um, a couple things about rehab for people who are unfamiliar with this process, because I totally was. I've never been to a rehab before, ever. Um, 
so, I mean, this was a completely new experience to me and I'll, I'll share some of those experiences a little bit later, but when you hear the term rehab, there are two types of rehab facilities. There are what's called subacute rehab facilities. And basically what they are, are like nursing homes. Right. Um, which for any number of reasons, that's not an ideal place for somebody who is, I mean, I'm 38. I think I'm relatively young, Mm -hmm. but not a good environment for one's mental health. I'll just put it that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that the staff at the hospital kind of knew that that wasn't going to be the best option for me. So, um, a couple of strings were pulled, I think, maybe to get me admitted to this rehab facility um, as quickly as possible. But I was admitted to a rehab to another hospital that has inpatient rehabilitation where I get uh, basically three to four hours of OT and PT a day, which is a lot. Okay. Um, It's a very grueling schedule that I'm very thankful for. Um, But, you know, I feel very fortunate that I was linked up with, you know, very professional um, therapists. And, you know, it's really been uh, an enlightening and in some cases degrading. That sounds really extreme, but I guess I'll let you judge for yourselves when I get into some of those uh, stories. But it's been an experience. So let me just back up and ask you one quick question. Okay, so you're admitted to the ER. This is right. your, your story. You, mm-hmm. You're having issues, and they they are you're admitted to into the hospital as an inpatient yes. after your ER visit. After right. that, then they say, okay, Cellumedrol. You get Cellumedrol. You only get three days of Cellumedrol, correct? Right. I only got three days, yes. Okay. So then they say, well, we think that you will benefit from PT, OT, et cetera. We're going right. to offer two options. And so what you said was the first option was a sub- Well, yeah. Okay. The f- that was the first option that I was given. And I think when, I mean, I was down really for whatever they recommended would be good for me mm-hmm. um, because I could go home and just be, you know, do nothing or really try and do what the professionals think would benefit me. Um, and so, yeah, rehab was my choice, but So subacute rehab was the first kind of thing that was expected, but I think the staff at the hospital knew that that just wasn't going to be good for me, Mm -hmm. all things considered. And then that's when I was offered um, this inpatient rehab at another hospital. Yes. Got it. Okay. So how has your experience been in inpatient rehab? Um, it, it has been an experience. Overall, I am just absolutely thrilled with the physical therapist and the occupational therapist that I've been working with. Mm-hmm. Um, really great group of people. Um, the nice thing about this rehab is that they really are concerned with the whole person, mm-hmm. so how you're doing, not just physically, but emotionally as well. That's important. Um, yeah, it's very important. So, you know, it's been, well, first of all, being in any sort of institutionalized environment, hospital, whatever, is a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, as I mentioned, I was admitted to the hospital on October 30th, and today is what, the 18th of November. So I've been in here a long time. Like it gets old, mm-hmm. you know, I want to go home. Like I miss my comfortable environment, but um, yeah, but something and not to be all over the place because this is a lot of information and I'm very excited to share my experiences with all of you. Mm-hmm. But 
I need to share something. And I was telling Dawn about this experience that I had um, when I was still at the hospital that I was at before here is St. Francis Hospital. So as anybody who's ever been admitted to the hospital knows, when you're admitted to the hospital, an OT, which is occupational therapist or occupational therapy, and PT, physical therapy, they come to visit you to get you kind of moving because staying stagnant and not moving um, for any length of time is not good. So, you know, OT and PT will come to your room and work with you, um, you know, regardless of why you're in the hospital. Um, And so the therapists who come to see you, they don't, they're just generalists. It's not as, they don't specialize. They're not assigned to you, right? Right, exactly. Right. So they're, you know, they work with all patients in the hospital. So that being said, I have MS. It's not, you know, necessarily so, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that these therapists have worked with somebody with who has MS before. So, uh, you know, I've been in the hospital before and I kind of know the drill. And so a part of my process is just asking the therapist if they've ever worked with anyone with MS before. Cause I'm just curious, like what their knowledge is, you know, whatever, but essentially it's a yes or no question. Okay. So one such day, this was maybe like the second or third day that I was in the hospital. Um, the OT and PT come in, OT did her thing and she, you know, wasn't in the room anymore. And so it was just me and the physical therapist. And of course I do my drill, you know, ask him, you know, if he's ever worked with anyone with MS before. And I was, and am still blown away by the nerve of this therapist. So, you know, I asked him if he had ever worked with anyone with MS before and he gets kind of silent and he's just looking at me with this look of pity. And he says, Oh yes. I mean, such a chronic progressive disease. So (laughs) immediately I'm like, okay, you know, yeah. All right. So then he continues uh, one, I worked with one woman who, you know, she was just in bed. She couldn't move. She couldn't even feed herself. Okay. That's so discouraging. <laughs> I was like, I don't even think I responded. Not because what he said to me uh, was anything that I, I know MS can do that to people. I mean, yeah. But how dare you say that to me in the position that I was in Mm -hmm. hospital having an MS exacerbation you're the physical therapist obviously trying to get me motivated to move and this that and the other and you're going to say this to me well I feel like that kind of statement is a lack of complete lack of sensitivity and (sighs) people don't really think before they speak. And although he probably didn't mean to cause any distress, emotional distress to you, I feel like that kind of statement puts a different spin on, you know, your whole environment, like everything that you're dealing with, you know, you're already sad, already frustrated. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, did he really think that that was an appropriate thing to say to me? I mean, because like, I look at it this way. I've had MS for almost 15 years now. I, you know, am used to nothing that you say about MS is going to shock me because I know all, I mean, not that I know everything about MS, but, you know, I know the drill. I know it's a chronic disease. Mm-hmm. I know what happened, this, that, and the other. But this therapist doesn't know my story. What if I was just diagnosed? And I'm scared. I mean, that that was dangerous what he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't know my mental state, if that was going to trigger me and, you know, spiral into something, you know, that got out of control for me emotionally. Like, mm-hmm. that was completely unacceptable and inappropriate what he did. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I'm still in shock about that. And again, just to clarify and reiterate to people, this was at the first hospital that I was at. This didn't happen at the rehab. Um, you know, I've had a completely different experience with the therapists here. Um, 
but yeah, like it's unbelievable. And just, you know, not to um, get off track, but I was telling a friend of mine this um, situation and she was appalled as well that this happened. And being the good friend that she is, she, you know, is an advocate. She's just that type of person. Mm -hmm. And so she ended up calling the, you know, PT department at St. Francis and just, you know, kind of expressed her, you know, not just dismay, just about how appalling that was that that therapist would say this. And this is a situation that is still unfolding and which is still kind of unbelievable to me, but apparently the head of PT at that hospital talked to all her staff and nobody, everyone is denying that anything like that happened. Wow. Like everyone's perfect. They couldn't possibly make a mistake or be insensitive. (laughs) So that whole situation is unfolding. Uh, That just is, just adds insult to injury. Why the heck would somebody lie about that? Mm -hmm. In effect, what they're saying I am, but anyway, not to, you know, derail this podcast, but yeah. So that whole experience with the physical therapist, yeah, that just really colored my beginning experiences in the hospital. I am so sorry you had to deal with that. I, I think for for a lot of MS patients, people should probably, you know, I, I don't know. That's when you have to be an advocate for yourself because mm-hmm. you have to say, look, that, you know, I appreciate you sharing this story. However, I'm in an emotional uh, conundrum right now. So... <laughs> can't hear anything that that isn't on a positive spin you know Um, and the scary thing about that though I mean I was and I'm still just appalled like just taken aback like did you really say this to me you know you're kind of like so blindsided that you don't even know how to respond right because your hope is to go to the hospital get better Right and leave and go home so that you can continue your life, not to sit and dwell about are you yeah. able to feed yourself or not? You know, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's frustrating. Like I, yeah. people wonder, and and again, I don't think that it was meant to harm you, or you know, I don't think he was trying to like be yeah. really, you know mean or anything like that. But just they don't think before they they speak or even acknowledge, okay, I'm in this delicate situation or, or this is not the time or place to discuss that. That I want to talk about healing. I want to talk about getting better. Right. Mm -hmm. Not about the chronic progressive nature of MS and the fact that, you know, some people can't feed themselves. Yeah. Right. Anyway. (laughs) So it, I think that that is something that uh, people, in our prof- healthcare professional environments should the the people in charge that they should understand that you know patients are in a very vulnerable you're in a vulnerable situation it's just just right. to be honest you know and you're kind of wide open emotionally so you you want to be sensitive you want to be clear you want to be aware of of your patient's needs and people should, it's, and I hate to sound like this because it makes things kind of impersonal, but it's almost as if you have to stick to a script. And if you're training or teaching, there should be a script that people, you know, should really, you know, refer to or read mm-hmm. and understand, okay, this is that, you know, this is an MS patient. Don't talk about not being able to feed yourself. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that that is appropriate at that time? <laughs> right. So it, it, I think what it boils down to is, do you have this emotional intelligence? You know, mm-hmm. people kind of lack that. They, they yeah. like showing any type of, you know, I'll say EI for short, but what, what it is, is you're familiar with emotional intelligence, are you? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, for everybody else, what it is, it's a skill and perceiving and understanding and, and managing the emotions, the feelings, you know, that, that you may be experiencing in an, in a professional situation, 
you have to manage your, you know, put on your professional hat, if you will, and manage, you know, what you're, you're dealing with at that time. Um, knowing the patient that you are talking to, um, knowing, Mm -hmm. you know, what they need and what they don't need. And most, quite often people want to hear positive things. You know, if if you go in for cancer treatment, you don't want to hear, oh yeah, well, you know, 90% of the people taking this medication didn't make it, you know, that, right. that's right. morbid. You don't, you, yes. you don't want to talk about it. So, um, yeah, I, I was researching and I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about, um, you know, just how people lack awareness and lack these sensitivities in just everyday life. It's not something that we're taught as a young age. Right. I, I don't think so. You know, I don't remember no. learning about that in school. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was taught this through because of my mom and dad, because I have, you know, pretty compassionate and um, empathetic parents. However, um, when you are in school, it's just not something that people and that teachers, you know, do a lesson on, unfortunately. Right. So I I started reading this article from a website. I think it's called roachandmartin.com. It's mm. I think it's from the UK. But anyway, they were talking about emotional intelligence and I will read it. It says that emotional intelligence fuels your performance both in the workplace and in your personal life, but it starts with you. So in in your situation, that gentleman probably should have gone to his script. And understood, you know, who who he was seeing, number one. And it starts with him because how you react, you're going to react to how, to what he's, you know, saying to you. Right. You know? So, um, yeah, it says, from your confidence, empathy, and optimism to your social skills and self-control, understanding and managing your own emotions can accelerate success in all areas of your life. I, I completely agree with that. What what do you think? Totally. Totally. Um I definitely agree with the fact that it starts with you. You know, like even beyond having an understanding of what emotional intelligence is, mm-hmm. it really um one of the things that I think about when, you know, hearing you read that excerpt is the fact that it requires that you are self-aware. Absolutely. You know, especially of whatever context that you're in, you know, as in the article, it says, you know, both your personal and your professional lives, you have to be self-aware about, you know, whatever situation you're in, you know, you right. have to take it upon yourself to kind of look within and yeah. Yeah. It says it, this is the last little paragraph I'll read. It says, no matter what professional field you're in, whether you manage a team of two or 20, or even just yourself, realizing how effective you are at controlling your own emo- emotional energy is a great starting point. And, it, you know, I I think that it's, it's not, I'm not trying to say that most people are lacking compassion and empathy and things like that, but it's something that you should be aware of. It it really right. is, you know? Um, f- for example, I have a really um, good associate, I will call him. Uh, I, I tend to not call people friends when they, when they show you who you are, <laughs> you know, people show you who, you, who, who they are. But oh, yeah. anyway, he talks to me about working out quite a bit. And most of my friends and f- close family, of course, they know the situation that I've been in over the past, I would say three, four years, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with the changes that MS has kind of brought about and going through Lemtrada year one, year two. Um, and everyone knows that I used to be a runner and we've, I've discussed this a few times on different, several podcasts. Mm-hmm. However, okay, so yeah, so I've been a runner and I, or I was a runner and I after MS kind of kicked me in the rear, it was like, nope, you're going to you're not going to run. You're not going to work out. You're just going to sit and enjoy sitting. <laughs> so yeah. I wasn't able to do the things that I used to do um so frequently. Anyway, to make a long story short, I've explained to this friend or associate 
you know, how I feel about running and sometimes it makes me sad. And, and we, again, we talked about this in another podcast about grieving the person that you used to be. And, you know, I, I'm pretty transparent when it comes to talking about this illness at this point in my life mm -hmm. and how I feel. And he, he's a runner. And so like, he'll talk about the running the Marine Corps marathon or just like his daily workouts. And, and I'm thinking, what, don't you understand? I've told you several times. Now, it's one thing if you call up your friend and they're like, hey, what you up to? And you right. exchange information or whatever. And you're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just relaxing, reading a book. Or what are you, what are you doing? Oh, I'm about to go work out. Okay. That's one thing. You don't know how I feel or anything, but right. you have these discussions with people. And if they're aware of your situation or that you have MS, I think it's kind of insensitive. And so he, he quite often he'll like send a random text or something like, Hey, what's going on? How are you doing? I'm getting ready to go for a run. And it's like, Oh my God. And I, and I said to him one day, it really bothers me when all you talk about is working out or running because it's something that I am, you know, trying to process that is right. difficult for me right now. You know, I'm not able to do that. Hopefully one day, but right now I can't. And you talking about that seems a bit insensitive. And yes. I think that that kind of person in that particular situation, he lacks emotional intelligence. So although our scenarios are different, they're kind of yes. parallel a bit. And my, my, I guess my point is people just aren't aware and they aren't thinking before and I keep saying it they're not thinking before they speak you yes know? yes no completely yeah the the situations are different but they're definitely parallel mm -hmm. um yeah a complete just lack of self-awareness one I think realizing who you're talking to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean um yeah what you are talking about kind of reminds me of a similar um, situation that I'm dealing with that um, it's different than both of these scenarios, but kind of similar in the context of emotional intelligence, perhaps. So, you know, I've been in the hospital now for, you know, since the 30th of October, and it's the 18th of November now. That's a long time to be in the hospital mm -hmm. um, for any illness. I don't care if it's MS, you know, the flu, pneumonia, whatever the case may be. Right. It's a long time to be in the hospital. And so while I feel very loved and supported from the majority of my friends um, throughout this process, because not only is MS a very lonely journey, but being in the hospital is as well. So, I mean, you need your friends and family during times like this. So with all of the love and support that I've been receiving and that I'm completely, totally grateful for, it makes people who are not involved in that, it makes their silence very loud. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um I have a friend um, in particular who is one of the people who um, has been noticeably absent in, you know, just the well wishes, not even necessarily paying me a visit or anything, because that's not really what's important to me. But it means something to me if you just reach out, give me a call, send me a text. Hey, I'm thinking of you, you know, uh, you know, sending you love, you know, stay strong, whatever. And so um, this. I had posted a, a post on Facebook, just kind of ranting um, about, you know, just my thoughts about that. And, and it was geared towards nobody in particular, but one of my particular friends who kind of relate, she kind of fit the bill in terms of, for lack of a better term, um, in terms of that, you know, kind of not being there for me. Um, she, you know, commented on the post, you know, I'm sure like feeling guilty because she saw herself in the post, um, you know, just reading it, just kind of internalized, well, hey, this is probably something that I'm guilty of. Um, she, she had responded to it. And in her response, um, she had commented, you know, that, you know, she's, 
you know, I'm in her thoughts, you know, other things like that, but that she clearly doesn't know, you know, she, she needs to learn more about MS because she, you know, wants to know how to support me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And those things, all very real and important things. However, I, even though I happen to be in rehab now because of MS, that doesn't negate the fact that I am your friend who's in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, you know, just, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter that I have MS at this point. It's just the fact that I'm in the hospital. I might need some love and support. I'm your friend. So the fact that you don't know a lot about MS is neither here nor there. Right. That's not relevant. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, hearing you talk about this idea of emotional intelligence, I kind of think about that because at the end of the day, you know, the fact that I have MS is irrelevant, not irrelevant, but to this situation, I just need a friend. Well, it's, you know what I mean? Right, right. That's not the glaring, you know, um, issue at that moment. What we're needing is a loving, you know, sympathetic, Right, you know, a friend, somebody that you right. you can lean on, right. right? Especially if you've known her for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> we've we've known each other for about fifteen years, and I, you know, I love her very much. Um, I do, but it's kind of hurtful, you know, when you think about kind of like the lack of self awareness because it's really not about what you don't know about my illness. Exactly. It's about the fact that we're friends and I needed I need some support. Right. Right. So, you know, I think you know, the examples that we just gave, you know, the therapist to Dawn's acquaintance to my friend, all different contexts, but I think they all like have kind of a theme. It's just really a lack of Emotional intelligence. Right. It's the same subject, if you will, or the same, I don't know, same problem, just different variables. Right. Yeah. Um, So I I think it's important for people to kind of, you know, remember and to have takeaways when when you go through staff meetings or even just Mm -hmm. with your friends, have regular discussions. I, like I said, I'm at this point, I'm an open book. I'm pretty transparent and I'm going to tell, you know, most of the people who claim that they are my friends and I claim that they're, that I'm their friend. This is what I need from you. And this is, this is how I can be a friend to you. And this is what I show you is what I am hoping to, you know, get in return. I mean, we're old enough to talk that way and to handle, you know, mature conversations. Um, Right. And I think in, in, in terms of a workplace, people should, should seriously consider, you know, taking a moment, you know, reading the notes, checking out Mm -hmm. what patient you're seeing prior to walking in so you know in your head, okay, this is how I'm going to approach this person. This is what right. I want to talk about. So that gentleman or any other person should know exactly who Dana is in room right. 24 or what have you, you know, and exactly right. what you've been dealing with and how long you've been there, how long you've been right. mess, you know, and I think it's important. That's something that you said that, that struck a, a chord for me. Mm-hmm. I always ask people if I have you know, a physical therapist or, you know, a mm-hmm. therapist or any type of person poking and prodding and coming close right. to me. Have you worked with an MS patient before? That right. is the number one question. And right. every disease is different. And, you know, one size doesn't fit all in, in a situation, you know, especially because this disease looks so, you know, different for right. everybody. Right. Um, and it changes it. Everything fluctuates. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, but again, you should have a script and it should be kind of, kind of generic. But once you know the patient or the person, that's when you interject your personality and, you know, you smooth it over you because you're, the goal is to make that person, first of all, it's uncomfortable being in a hot, being in a hospital or in, in any rehab situation. So you right. want to make that person as comfortable as possible so that you can give them treatment 
or that they can receive the treatment and get home right. and get back to their daily life and, and, you know, regular living. So without being traumatized, that's right. <laughs> and I, and so we came up with, with some pointers, everyone. So we got five tips list, uh, a list of, uh, I guess we could call it emotional intelligence tips. Yeah. Um, so number one is pay attention to how you behave. Uh, you know, if you have any biases towards anything, you know, put that aside. You got it. Mm-hmm. I'm talking strictly in a professional setting, right. but in a friendship setting or a family situation, you should always, of course, you know, take a personal inventory as one of my girlfriends used to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then number two, practice self-awareness. Um, you know, be aware of what you're saying. Be aware of how you're acting. You know. Um, are you coming across as a know-it-all? You know, if if right. the patient is trying to ask you questions and, you know, are you being dismissed? You know, right. that happens or a lot. Are you centering yourself when this is, you know, that the patient or the friend is the focus? You know, I think it's so important for people not to center themselves in situations you know, Absolutely. yeah, that hit the hit, yeah. hit the nail on the head. Um, perfect. Yeah. So, and the, number three, practice active listening. If, mm-hmm. let me ask you, because I'm not going to put all of the blame on that gentleman. I'm going to put a little bit of, put a little pressure on you. Did you explain, because we have to take responsibility for certain situations, you know what I mean? A part of it. Did you right. explain to that guy? Did you speak up for yourself? Since we talk about self-advocacy and things like that, you say, you know, that's just not something I want to hear. Did you say something to him? So no, I was too blindsided. No, I like, I just wasn't, I was so in shock that I'm here in the hospital trying to recover. And you would say this, which is why, and I totally agree with you. It's important to speak up for yourself. However, the thing that is so important for medical professionals, especially, is that whenever you have a patient who's in a hospital and you're the professional, whether it be a therapist, nurse, CNA, which we'll talk about an experience that I had with a, you know, a CNA or personal care assistant here in the hospital, which is wild. But anyway, you're dealing with somebody in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. And there's a power dynamic there. So, you know, when you, when he sprung that on me and I'm just sitting here in my hospital gown, all, you know, sick and feeling vulnerable and weak and everything. When you, he sprung that on me, I was just completely blindsided. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't even know what to say because I was so in shock that he would have the nerve to say that to me. Right. So, um, let me ask, yeah. this is interesting because I, I, I understand what you're saying because you don't know what to say when you are in that situation, you know, feeling very sick and weak and, right. you know, someone says something that blindsides you. What do you do? How do you remedy that? That That's my question. Well, I think that the whole issue, you know, that I was explaining the whole further conundrum that I'm experiencing with that is my friend who took it upon herself to advocate for me called the you know head of physical therapy and they're denying the whole thing so obviously you know I think a remedy would be to you know talk with whoever's in charge or try to get to the bottom of it because clearly some re-education of the therapists need to be you know, need to be done, not necessarily re-education, but really talking about boundaries and what's acceptable or not. But I guess in this situation, this isn't a great situation because I would hope that most people would take responsibility for their actions and not completely deny them. Um, But I think that it is important at some point in time, revisiting that situation or the person or what have you, and trying to you know, get to the bottom of it, maybe re-education, whatever the case may be. I agree. Yeah. But again, this is a situation that's still 
evolving. Um, yeah, I'll have to keep you guys all posted about what happens with that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah. So number three, practice practice active listening, Kind, you know, goes for, for both, you know, both mm-hmm. parties. Because when you, as the patient, I suppose, or, you know, the person with MS, if you are listening, then you're able to, you know, calculate some sort of response that, right. you know, late, whether it's at that moment or later on, you're able to, to say, look, this is what happened. And this is why I'm disturbed by what was said. So when you're listening actively, then you're able to attack the issue, I think. Definitely. I completely agree. So yeah, that leads to number four, which again, communicate effectively. Again, talking, you know, it's, this is all about communication, really, you know, right. Um, Making sure that you're not hurting people's feelings. That's kind of what it boils down to. I know that's a simple way to put it, but I mean, that's that's the bottom line. Yeah, definitely. And language matters. That's number five. So number four is communicate effectively and language matters. So I know you mentioned something and I think the entire, our entire MS community that, you know, people that we interact with, they were outraged. So can you please talk about that? Because that was, oh, wow. Um, Yes. Language matters, period. So as I alluded to before, um, I had a very disturbing um, encounter with one of the personal care assistants here at the hospital. So um, I, you know, in the interest of being transparent and totally open about everything. So here in the rehab, they have us wear depends for a number of reasons, probably because, you know, if you have issues with you know, not being able to hold it and an aide isn't able to, you know, help you to the restroom right away. Obviously that, you know, wearing a Depends is going to, you know, make people's lives a lot easier. Nonetheless, whatever, people with MS can relate to issues of incontinence and things like that. So, okay, have a Depends on, whatever. So I go, this is when I, um, you know, first... It was, you know, one of the first days that I was here at the rehab. So um, the nurse and the aide, you know, come over, you know, I called the nurse, you know, or the call button or whatever to help me to the restroom. And (laughs) it's not funny. And I'm happy that I can laugh about it now because this is so not funny. But the aide comes in and and if I sound like I'm whispering, listeners, it's because I'm here at rehab and I don't want to be talking too loud because I don't know who can hear me, even though my door is closed. Anyway, so <laughs> like I'm like telling a secret. So the aide comes in by my bed and <laughs> it's not funny. I'm sorry. She asks. I'm sorry. I can't even get it out. Okay. She asked me if I'm wet. (laughs) It's not funny. Okay. She asked me if I'm wet. And I I didn't know what, how to respond. And she, this, this isn't funny at all. Okay. <laughs> she, I, can't even, I can't even get it out. So I'm gonna laugh because it's it's like you're mortified. First of all, you're like dirty and you have to wear depends or you have to wear some diaper. I mean, trust me, I understand because I go through that quite a bit. Yes. Incontinence oh. is an issue, you know. Right. Okay. So she asked me if I'm wet, and then she tells me she needs to change my diaper. Oh God! (laughs) I was I didn't know what to say or do. Like bless her heart, as my grandmother would say. 
Oh my God. Okay. One thing I'll say that, and again, I'm laughing about this. It's so not funny, but like I said, I'm happy that I'm able to laugh about this now because it really like all the people that I've told the situation to, which I brought it to the attention of a social worker, you know, a bunch of people and it was rectified in terms of talking about the fact that language matters with um, patients. But um, so I'm, I'm happy I can laugh about it now. But one of the things like they're supposed to in my it's been my experience dealing, you know, with other nurses and personal care assistants is that they refer to the to the depends as briefs. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, do you need and not to say, well, first of all, are you wet? It's just unacceptable. <laughs> but I refer to it as a diaper. I mean, <sighs> No, I'm an adult. All the people here are, I'm not a baby. Like yeah. it's humiliating to have to wear this period. You know, Like it's not something that I want to be an issue to be made of because yeah, it's not, you know, a glamorous thing to have to wear depends. Um, but to refer to it as a diaper versus a brief, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, I think, or even it depends um, that is one of the, I mean, don't we deserve some dignity, Yes. you know, to ask me if I'm wet and that tell me that you need to change my diaper. I'm a 38 year old woman. Right. I mean, give me some respect and let me have a little bit of dignity, you know? Well, I think whether you're 38 or 83, I mean, I, absolutely adult, you know, but especially when you're, when you're so young, I, I think that again, people are not using, they're not stopping before they use their, yes. and use their tongue to say something. And she's probably so accustomed to, you know, talking to patients that way and speaking right. like that, you know, because we, as we age, we do turn into this, like, go into this infantile state. Right. People treat, you know, the, the geriatric community like, like children, you know, but they shouldn't because they're, they're still adults. They're just older. Yes. With issues. That's it. Right. Yeah. They're our elders. That's right. They're not babies. But yeah, I mean, language matters. Now, if... Like I said, the whole thing, are you wet? That's like a whole other story. But, um, you know, it would be different if she asked me, you know, would you like, you know, another brief? Okay. You know, whatever. Yeah. But I'm going to change your diaper? Exactly. I mean, no. No. I mean, no. Mm-mm. That's just completely unacceptable. It is. Um, language matters. You know, a brief versus a diaper. Come on now. I think it is very important for people to remember, people in our situation who have MS, you have to teach people how to treat you. Because if if they are going to speak to you like you're a child, then, you know, if you don't put as if, you know, to put in, you know, simple terms, if you don't put Mm -hmm. a check at that point, then they'll, they'll continue. And people right. continue to walk all over you or just say whatever it is that they need to say or want to say and not think about it. But this isn't just helping, you know, when you put them in their place or not in their place, mm-hmm. not, you know, not in a mean way. But when you say, you know, that was kind of kind of rude or insensitive. Can you use another word? I don't know how you would say it in, you know, in right. that situation. But when you say something to them, it helps others. And, you know, it helps other people because maybe they, you know, maybe they're rushing, you know, everybody has a, a bad day or whatever, you know, or just aren't thinking, you know, I I have moments like that quite a bit, but right. um, it helps others when you right. speak up. Right. And, or, you know, what I, again, I'm in this situation where I, I was so mortified and blind like did she really just say diaper you know my my first inclination was this has this should be 
addressed at a higher level. But clearly, there's something, clearly, some redirection needs to happen, not necessarily just with this person, this aide. And she's a lovely person. I mean, I still, you know, work with her now. You know, it's, you know, she's a, a, a a nice person. And I don't take what she said personally. Um, but I did talk to the social worker here who was just completely mortified. Like it, her face was just probably how all of your faces are when you heard that story diaper. Um, and you know, I, she brought it to the attention of the nursing supervisor um, who brought it, brought it to her staff's attention. I don't know. I don't think that she talked to that person specifically, but she talked to the entire staff about the fact that language matters, Mm -hmm. Um, which that is what needs to be done. And I would encourage people, you know, don't be afraid to make an issue out of things. Mm Sometimes it's not, you have to pick and choose your battles, to be honest, when you're in a hospital situation, because, you know, I'm, I've been here, you know, going on three weeks. I'm not trying to make enemies here. However, it is important to advocate in some way, shape or form. Yes. Because it's not just at this point, I, I'm over the whole diaper situation, but I would like to save some other people that humiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I why this is important to know, I think, for people in a professional setting and just in a, you know, a more personal setting, it's important for people to understand people don't, and I'm going to quote, I think, who said it? Maya Angelou. People don't remember what, you say, they remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. Everything that you've experienced and what you've shared with me and, you know, our MS community, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't remember every little detail that you'll say about it, but I remember mm-hmm. how it made me feel. And then I put myself in your shoes and I think, gosh, mm-hmm. how did that make her feel? And, and again, I don't think people are being, you know, trying to like spew some sort of, you know, hatred or no, no, of course not. But it's just again, it's a lack of of awareness, a lack of awareness of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And it's important for people who have MS to understand: you got to speak up for yourself. You, you know, it's hard enough dealing with this crazy monster bully disease, um, but then you got to face all the other, you know, little challenges. Right. You know, that you've explained. So yeah, it's, it's important. It's like, pay attention, pay attention yes. to how you behave, practice self-awareness, practice active yes. listening, communicate effectively and language matters. Yes. Wow. I know this was a lot listeners and I appreciate all of you tuning in and listening to my rehab story. Um, For those of you who may not be familiar with our social media, I am trying as much as I can to share my experiences here in rehab on our Instagram page. Um, And our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter is uh, Myelin Melanin, no and. Um, So if you're interested at all in some of my musings about my rehab journey, I encourage you to take a look at our Instagram page. Yes. So yeah. So that being said, I know this was a ton of information. Again, thank all of you for listening. I think that this is a really important topic, not necessarily my rehab story, but the idea of emotional intelligence. um, I think it's really important. Right. Thank you for sharing, Dana, because it is, it takes a lot of courage to do what you know, to say what you said and to just go, kind of go through mm-hmm. everything. Um, and it, it takes a lot of courage for, for I, I would say, a, a huge number of people who have MS to talk about it. And yeah. it, it really is helpful for us to support one another and um, right. to share these stories because I'm sure you're not the only person that's faced this before. You know? Right. So, 
right. if I'm in this situation, I know, okay, this is what Dana, this is what happened to her. So, you know, it kind of puts you on guard, you know, not in a bad way, but just kind of so that you can be aware and again, advocate for yourself. Exactly, exactly. So, So, no, I and I thank all of you, especially the MS community has been so supportive, especially um, on Instagram, just, you know, sending support and words of encouragement. I really appreciate that. So I want to thank all of you who've um, sent well wishes my way. Yeah, they're wonderful. I love our community. Yeah, I I, absolutely. So with that said, um, you can find us, thank you for listening, you can find us on the web at myelinandmelanin.com. Also, please, I will be posting a couple of blog posts sharing um, some of my experiences well, as well. So please check out um, the website for more information. And I, th- and I think we will um, post the article, the emotional intelligence article that Dawn was talking about as well. Yes in case anybody is interested. So, you know, find us um, at myelinandmelanin.com on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at myelinmelanin and YouTube as well. So thanks everybody for listening to this kind of interim episode before of season two. And um, we will talk to you guys soon. Have a good evening. Bye. Bye.